You're listening to a talk from our Uni Church conference, Glory and Shame of the Cross. It's part of a series, so make sure you listen to them in order. All right, our last talk. Can I, um, can I say how much I've enjoyed getting to know you guys this week? I've loved having lots of conversations and sitting around dinner and having questions and getting to know you. And you guys have just been incredibly welcoming to a loud, noisy, offensive Australian. And not just Rowan, you've also been very welcoming to me. So much so that, are you ready for this? Are you ready? Hey. I've been dying to take this jacket off. It's so hot in here. (laughs) At last, I am ready uh, to become part of Uni Church. I'm ready to join. In fact, I've put in my application for a summer internship. Uh, happy to join the team, uh, expecting it to be rejected. But I'm also wondering, is it time for me to make the big shift? Uh, is it time for me to take off my dirty, yellow, manky jersey and put on the pristine, all-black jersey? Is it time for me to become a New Zealander? Is it time for me to become a Kiwi? And so I, wanna, I, want you to ask for, I want you to talk for a second among each other yourselves. What would I need to know? What is it that makes someone a true New Zealander? Chat with your neighbour. What would I need to know? What is it that makes someone a true local New Zealander? Chat with your neighbour. Alrighty, let let the education begin, form me, shape me, mould me. What do I need to know? What is it that makes someone a true Kiwi? Josh. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Pavlovas, flat whites are invented and the marmot. I, I think there actually has been definitive evidence that pavlova was invented in New Zealand first. I think even Australians, we don't like it, but we're willing to admit that there is good evidence that it was invented in New Zealand first. To my mind, it still tastes disgusting. Like I'm actually, I'm happy to let go of, of pavlova, <laughs> but, but I think that you guys have actually won that one. 
Marmite, oh gee, okay, that, that might be a taking up my cross moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what else? What else do we, uh, what else am I going to need to know in order for, to make the transition to, to becoming a Kiwi? <laughs> okay, that's, that's fantastic. Non-confrontational, but passive-aggressive. I love that, okay? Yep, I might need, I'm just aggressive, and so I might need work on that one. Speaking on behalf of someone, they said... Um... <laughs> okay, speaking on behalf of, let me throw my neighbour under the bus, yes? Yeah, yeah, which I, I think that's actually one of the things the world loves about Kiwis, that she'll be right, that relaxed attitude, the fact that you guys don't take yourself seriously. Um, particularly the, 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 the Kiwi sense of humour, the Taika Waititi, the uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, the Thor Ragnarok, there's this beautiful, we don't take ourselves too seriously, which Americans just don't get, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. What else am I going to need to know? How, shape me. So that I can become a local. I need to understand the Treaty of Waitangi, which I must admit, it's been really interesting having conversations around that it is something that people talk about. Um, it's funny, I've spent quite a lot of time in Christchurch and every single conversation in Christchurch eventually becomes a, a conversation about earthquakes. Um, but up here, uh, you guys don't talk about earthquakes, but the Treaty of Waitangi actually gets talked about a fair bit, yes. Yeah, I think we might even be heading uh, up in that part of the world because it's up around the Bay of Islands, isn't it, that it was, that it was signed? Yeah, okay. Uh, good. Yeah, what else am I going to need to know? How do I become a true, a true Kiwi? Tall poppy. Tall poppy syndrome, yes. Um, f- although, Because uh, Australia has that as well, but I think you guys even, even more so. Yeah, yeah. And you, so, just, you just can't take them down verbally. You've got to freeze them out. Oh, okay. So how does this work? You just want to punch them in the head because you're in Australia. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, okay. And so you leave the poppy alone to be bashed by the wind. That's, that's how it works. Okay. Yes. Um, isn't that interesting? And Americans, they really celebrate the tall poppy. Uh, in our shared culture, we, in our own ways, we, we knock them down. So, yeah, get familiar with the language. Okay. Yep. Yes. Uh, which um, I've noticed that lots of people do. It's, it's, it's a real thing that people... So in Australia, there is a little bit of a token sort of understanding and acceptance of um, our Indigenous culture, but it's very much a token. Most people don't know anything about Australian culture, whereas you guys genuinely do, uh, which I think is one of the lovely things about, about New Zealand. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. We might need to deep, dig further into this. I've got a. Okay. Right. Look, I'm willing to have a crack at this. I wasn't willing to go in the water yesterday. I'm too scared of the cold. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm willing to go there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any last things? What, are, what am I going to need to do here if I'm going to be a local? Duna. Well, but I'm going to, I'm never going to give up thong. Like for me, thongs. But so what's a Duna? What do you guys call it? 
a duvet. Well, that just, oh, oh there's descent. Are you, are you going with doona, Cara? You're thinking, oh, no, okay, duvet. What's a doona? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, a doona is a, is a, it's kind of a proper blanket. Andrew? Which, your national anthem is amazing, right? Isn't it God save New Zealand? God protect New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> it might be easier for me to just stay home. <laughs> saying, saying what means more than one thing? Okay. I don't even know what Orbis G means in one language, let alone. Okay. There's a lot for me to learn here, isn't there? And yet, in all seriousness, no matter how many years I live in New Zealand, if I was to move here, Peter tells me it can never become my home. And for you, it can never become your home. Because have a look at what Peter, how Peter starts his letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So do you see how Peter describes Christians there? He calls us strangers in this world. And that word strangers, it's the same word for aliens or refugees or the idea of a pilgrim. If, we're, if you're a Christian, we're pilgrims on our way home. And Peter's pilgrims happen to be scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, um, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia. He's, Peter's pilgrims, they're scattered all over the ancient world. And yet the funny thing is, the people that Peter's writing to were probably actually born in those cities. And so the Christians that Peter is writing to in Pontus were probably born in Pontus. Technically, they were Pontus locals. But here's the thing. I may have been born in Pontus. I may have been born in Australia or New Zealand, but Pontus, Australia, New Zealand will never be my home. Because look in verse 1, we are God's elect chosen people, which means that heaven is actually our true home. So look down in verse 4, we read it before, heaven is where my inheritance is. When you think about it, where is your home? It's where your inheritance is. And verse 4, isn't it just the most beautiful promise? We have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil or fade. Isn't that the most beautiful part? You have an, if you're a Christian, you have an inheritance in heaven that is kept for you there. It's protected and guarded and it will never diminish. It will never perish or spoil or fade. Which means that here on earth, I will only ever be a pilgrim. I'll only ever be a stranger. Now, when you get that, it actually really changes how you see life here, doesn't it? Because if I'm a stranger here on earth, if I'm a pilgrim, that means I never expect to feel at home here. I never expect my life to be easy here because a pilgrim's life is never easy, is it? A pilgrim's life is hard. They're on the road. They're homesick and they're longing to get to their destination. And so pilgrims don't expect comfort until they reach their homeland. And in those terms, Jesus is the ultimate pilgrim, isn't he? Earth was never Jesus' home. 
Heaven was. Heaven was, home was for Jesus at his father's side. Here on earth, Jesus was always an outsider. He was always a stranger. His own people, the Jews, hated him and rejected him and scorned him. And the cross was actually the pinnacle of that, wasn't it? The cross was the pinnacle of them saying, you do not belong. We hate you. We reject you. And it was only when Jesus went back to his father's side that his pilgrimage was finished. And what we're going to see this morning, just fairly briefly, this talk is much shorter than all the others. We're going to see that Jesus' pilgrim path is our pilgrim path. The Christian life is suffering here on the road before we reach the glory of our homeland. That's the shape of the Christian life. It's suffering now and glory to come. And in fact, you see this theme all the way through the book of 1 Peter. Most of the books of the Bible, they have one dominant theme, one theme that that kind of captures the whole book and it's kind of good to have that in your head so what is the book of Romans about the book of Romans is all about what is the gospel for Jew and Gentile now you guys are about to begin uh, the book of Revelation what is the book of Revelation about it's life between Jesus resurrection and his return and three big themes of glory suffering and faithfulness that's what Revelation is all about what one Peter is all about is suffering before glory. And you see it all the way through the book. So have a look in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Do you see the pattern of Peter's thinking there? We've got this glorious future, an inheritance in heaven, and it's wonderful, but life on the road is different. He says, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, And that's because our path is modelled on Jesus' path. So look down in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You see, our path and Jesus' path are exactly the same. Suffering now as a pilgrim here and then glory in the future. Or you see it in chapter 2. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 20. 2, verse 20. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You see, we're pilgrims following in Jesus' suffering footsteps. Or turn over to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. You see, it's the same pattern again and again and again. We're pilgrims on a road and that means suffering here now before the glory of our homeland and our inheritance. And the whole book of 1 Peter is written to keep you on the road. That's what the purpose of this letter is. How do you keep pilgrims on a road of suffering? And it tells us why we suffer 
and it shows us how we'll get there. And so we're just going to look at three quick passages this morning. Firstly, why do we suffer in chapter 1? And have a look in verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this inheritance you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is going to sound extraordinary, particularly if you've come from a, a, a certain kind of church background, but suffering comes from God. Lots of Christians think that suffering really only comes from the devil and nice things come from God. So God and Satan are locked in this cosmic spiritual battle and I'm caught in the middle of it. And when, whenever bad things happen in my life, that's because Satan is winning. So I have an awful week and I fail all of my exams and I get thrown out of my house and my girlfriend breaks up with me. Well, that's because Satan is winning in this cosmic battle. But then I discover that I've passed all of my exams and actually I've got a better house and an even nicer girlfriend. Well, that's because God is now winning in my life. But that's not how it works. No, both joy and suffering come from the same God. So in Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You see, suffering comes from God. And Satan is involved. He's got his own wily schemes and his own purposes. But God is the one responsible for it. So why would God ever do that? Why would God make me suffer here if I'm bound for heavenly glory? Well, here's the thing. Suffering is how God gets me to the heavenly glory. Because look in verse 7. Peter says, suffering is what proves my faith to be genuine. Suffering refines my faith. That's the word Peter uses there. It's refines. It's what you do to precious metals. So if you've got gold or something like that and it's got impurities in it, you melt it in fire to melt out all of the impurities so that what you have is a pure block of gold. And suffering does that to our faith. The fact is every single Christian is going to go through trials. God has them planned. And if you haven't gone through suffering in your life yet, it's probably just because you haven't lived long enough to have real suffering. But some of you already have. And all of us will. And when that happens to you, you will discover if you really do trust God. When God takes you down a pilgrim path that you never would have chosen for yourself, so the path of singleness or the path of losing a child or the path of joblessness or the path of persecution or oppression, it's when God takes you down a path that you think, I would never, ever have chosen this for myself, you're going to find yourself asking, do I really trust him? Do I really trust God here? Do I trust that he loves me? And do I trust his promises? And some people just go, no, I don't. If this is where God's leading me, 
I don't trust him. I don't trust that he's good. I don't trust that he loves me. And what that shows is that they never really did trust God. They never really did have a genuine faith because as soon as it was put to the test, as soon as God said to them, will you trust me here? They said no. But if you can go through depression and say, you know, I really do trust God. When you can lose a baby and say, you know, I really do trust God. When you can trust God even when people abandon you, when your dreams of marriage get dashed, if you can still say, I trust him that he's good and that he loves me and that he's wise, then your faith is refined and it's made tougher for next time. One of the greatest privileges of my life was walking through two years with a couple named Sam and Amy. Sam and Amy both uh, went through our churches, uh, uni churches. They graduated and then uh, they had a baby, Oscar, lovely, who was growing up. Then they had a second baby, Arlo. And at a week old, Arlo caught a cold, just a cold, common cold. The problem is that cold went to his heart. And the thing is, at that age and maybe for the rest of your life, your heart muscle can't heal. And Arlo spent three weeks in the Westmead Children's Hospital, kind of the premier children's hospital, and they put him on all these things. And at the end of three weeks, he died. And our whole church just wrote it out. Um, We wrote it out with them. And it was just heart-wrenching. I remember driving down to visit Sam and Amy in the hospital uh, as Arlo was dying. We knew he was going to die. And I arrived there pretty much just as he died. And I said to Emma, I've... I have no idea what I'm going to say. I've got no idea how I can comfort these people. And I walked in and Amy was on the floor and Sam was there and she looked up at me. She said, I hate God. I hate him. I hate him with a passion because he's taken my child. And then I remember a week later, it was about four days later, we went to to the funeral and... Amy got out of the car and again she was just on the ground and she said, I can't see God. Where is God in this? And I think it was probably the hardest single moment of my life just loving this couple. I adore them. I was so close to them. And, you know, every week for the next 18 months, I went and I spent all of Thursday morning with them. I'd arrive about nine, I'd leave about one. And we cried and we talked and we we wrestled with, is God good Did God let this happen? Did God make this happen? Is this God's will? Is this Satan? And, you know, by the end of that 18 months, in fact, well before the end of the 18 months, Amy could say, I don't exactly know why, but I know God is good. I know he loves me. And I know he's in control. And I know he's sovereign. And I'm going to trust him for the rest of my life. And, you know, that's what real faith looks like. Sometimes we do get absolutely swamped and it just covers us. And in that moment, Amy's, Amy's faith was, boy, it was, it was tested to the extreme. But just gradually, month after month, we looked at the goodness of God. We read the Bible together. And she really can say, this was God's good plan. You know what's lovely? This doesn't always happen, but you know what's beautiful? Is that coming up to the second... Uh, anniversary, uh, so the, the month between when Arlo was born and when Arlo died, 
we'd been praying that God would give them another child. And uh, I, I had some news for them and I called them up and I said, I've got some news for you. And Amy said, we might have some news too. And I went and visited them and I told them my news, which was pretty uneventful. And then Amy said, we're having another child. And we talked and it was just lovely. And then about half an hour later, after we were talking about everything else and we'd moved on to talking about other things, she leaned over and she put her hand on my knee and she said, oh, by the way, twins. And they've been born and they're wonderful and adorable. But I learned what real faith is. I watched one Peter played out in their lives. This is what real faith is. Real faith is tested on the road as a pilgrim. In fact, Peter uses some strange language here that helps us to see what our real danger is. Just have another look in verse 4. Peter says, We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. An inheritance that's kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter says, God is shielding us by his great power until our final salvation. And immediately we have to ask, shielding us from what? What is God's great power shielding us from? Because it can't be suffering, can it? God's not shielding us from suffering. God's sending us suffering. It can't be pain because God's using pain. Now, what God's shielding us from is falling away. God's shielding us because verse 9, so that verse 9, you will receive the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What do you think you most need shielding from, protection from in this world? From suffering? From persecution, from hardship, from illness or death? No, actually what we most need shielding from is comfort. From becoming secure in this world. When you think about it, the single biggest danger that any pilgrim ever faces is settling down. It's getting so comfortable here that we give up on our homeland, that we forget the journey, that we just become a local and we lay down our staff. And the fact is, God loves you too much to let you get comfortable. God loves you too much to let you become a local here on earth. And that's why he will send suffering into your life to refine your faith, to focus you on the end road. And so that's why, that's the first reason why we suffer. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter gives us another reason why we suffer. So come over to 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1. 1 Peter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Because he who suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. 
Now notice again the pilgrim's pattern of life. Verse 1, we suffer because Jesus suffered. So Christ suffered in his body and we arm ourselves with the same attitude in verse 1. And verse 4 We suffer because just like Jesus, we're not going to plunge with this world into the same flood of dissipation. Isn't that an amazing description of the world's immorality? It's a flood of dissipation. It's drunkenness, debauchery, lust, orgies, carousing. That is what our world is like, particularly when you let them off the leash. And if you stand apart from that, if you stand apart from all of the things that the world loves to do, if you say it's wrong... You can expect to be abused for that. What do you mean that you're not going to come and get drunk with us? I mean, don't you like a drink? Actually, you're afraid that the real you is going to come out, aren't you? You're afraid that you're hiding the real you. And that's why you don't want to get drunk with us. Or is it that you just think you're too good for us? That's what it is. You Christians, you always think you're better than us. That's why I hate you religious people. See, this is what you can expect if you live as a pilgrim. If you don't share the values of this world, you will be abused for it. And it's actually getting harder and harder in my lifetime. For most of my life, especially when I first became a Christian in the late 1980s, Christians were seen as the nice, warm, friendly, slightly odd, churchy, religious types who... We looked after the poor people. We had nice buildings to get married in. And we're a bit soft-headed because we believed in God, but we're essentially harmless. That's how Christians were viewed in the 1980s. But that's not how the world sees us anymore, is it? No, now we're seen as the bigots. Now we're seen as people who are narrow-minded and we're oppressive and we're moralistic because we won't plunge with them into things like homosexuality into things like abortion. We won't actually condone things like transgenderism. We won't condone gay marriage. We believe that those things are all actually wrong. And they're going to hate us for that. And I'm convinced that the next 50 years is going to be much harder than the last 50 years. And so I want to ask you, are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for life as a pilgrim to stand out there alone and be hated for belonging to Jesus? Because that's actually the pilgrim pattern. It's suffering before glory. And yet in verse 1, Peter says something really wonderful. Have a look in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. God will use our persecution to make us more like him. As we're attacked for living for Jesus, as we don't live for earthly desires, we will learn to live for the will of God. Each moment when we stand against the world and we suffer for it, it actually makes us ask, where does my loyalty lie? With the world or with Jesus? God will use our suffering to shape our character and make us more obedient. And so let me ask you here this morning, are you living differently to your friends friends who aren't Christian? Do you actually stand out by your godliness? Or around them, are you just like them? 
Do you find yourself swearing while you're around them? Do you find yourself gossiping while you're around them? Do you drink too much when they drink too much? Do you join in and laugh at their crude jokes? Do you sense a God out of your conversation while you're around them? Because look, at one level, they just seem like small things. I mean, what's one swear word in the big scheme of things? What's laughing at one crude joke in the big scheme of things? It's what they represent. They represent the decision that I'm going to belong to the world. I'm going to become a local here. This is my home. Rather than my home being in heaven. As Christians, we need to get used to leaving one drink before everyone else. We need to get used to getting up and walking away from the conversation when they start to gossip. In fact, we need to get better at saying, you know, that person's a friend of mine and I think you guys are gossiping. We need to defend the absent person, not join in at the crude joke. We need to be thought of as being a little bit weird, not one of the gang. Because the fact is, if you're a pilgrim, you are not one of the gang. You're on the road to your true home. In fact, do you maybe need to go back to your friends and say to them, look, I'm really sorry, but I haven't been entirely honest with you. I've been pretending to be one kind of person around you when really I'm a different kind of person altogether. And I'd love to explain to you what I'm really all about. Do you need to go back to your friends and explain that you're a pilgrim on the road? So we suffer because it refines our faith. We suffer because we won't plunge in to the world's sins and God will use that to help us to be more obedient. The last passage we're going to look at is 1 Peter chapter 3. Have a look in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Peter says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer from do, for doing what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have. But do this in gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's better if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. So Peter actually says something incredibly helpful in verse 13, doesn't he? He says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? It's actually true at one level that if you follow God, people are more likely to like you. Because when you think about it, who would you want as a flatmate? Or who would you want as a workmate? The person who gossips and slanders and stabs people in the back and breaks confidence or the person who's faithful and who's loyal and who's humble and who's generous and who's gentle? You'd want that person, wouldn't you? That's a much better friend or a flatmate. And the fact is, 
even people who aren't Christians can often see that. They'll often say, actually, one of the things that really attracts me to you guys is that you have real genuine friendships. And that was the thing that actually led me to Christ. I came in, became involved with a Christian family and I looked at the way they treated each other and I thought, wow, this is amazing. These people have such great relationships. And so at one level, people will like us more when we obey God. But it's not an ironclad guarantee, is it? Because the very next thing that Peter says is, but if you suffer for doing good, then actually count yourself blessed. Remember, they're going to abuse us for not joining in to their flood of dissipation. And so look at the brilliant thing that Peter tells us to do in verse 14. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. I think this is one of the most helpful lessons you can ever learn in life. Who are you going to be afraid of? Who are you going to stand in awe of in your life? The fact is, I'm often afraid of people. What are they going to say to me? More often, it's actually, what are they going to say about me? What lie? Are they going to tell about me? And other people are going to believe it. Because this is the amazing thing. Everyone in the world knows that gossip is usually lies. Everyone in the world knows that you shouldn't trust someone who's bad-mouthing someone else. People who aren't Christian know that. But we always believe it. It's one of the things that drives me most mad about Christians. We all know that you mustn't gossip. We all know you shouldn't trust someone who's speaking evil of someone else. We know that the Word of God tells them to do it, but as soon as someone does, we tend to believe it. And so I'm always afraid, what are people going to say of me? What are people going to say about me? And who's going to believe it? And what it does is it leads me not to speak up. But Peter tells me, Be more afraid of Jesus than anyone else. And in verse 14, he quotes Isaiah 8. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. That's actually from Isaiah chapter 8 because Isaiah actually had really good reason to be afraid of the people God had sent him to. Isaiah was younger than, than we are, than you guys are, when God called him to go and prophesy to Israel. And God told Isaiah right at the beginning of his ministry that he was going to be a failure. God wasn't sending Isaiah to Israel in order to turn them back from their sin. God was sending Isaiah to Israel to condemn them for their sin. They'd had their chance to turn back and they weren't going to turn back now. No one was going to listen to Isaiah because God had sent him to harden them. And God said to Isaiah, do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you ought to regard as holy. He is the one you ought to fear. He is the one you ought to dread. And Peter takes that same lesson that Isaiah needed to learn and he gives it to us. He says, do not fear what the world fears, people. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, which is actually one of the great passages that helps us to see that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God. Because Peter takes an Old Testament passage about the Lord, about Yahweh, And he applies it directly to Jesus. But isn't Jesus more terrifying than anyone you'll ever meet? We've seen that this week, haven't we? Isn't Jesus far more majestic, far more frightening than anyone you will ever meet? 
And shouldn't Jesus actually be the one person that we're most afraid of letting down? Remember that. When you're in class or when you're at work or when you're with your parents and when you're with your friends, when you're afraid, ask yourself in this situation, who is my Lord? Them or Jesus? Who is more powerful here? Them or Jesus? Who will I stand before to be judged for all of my eternity? Them or Jesus? So who am I going to serve? Them or Jesus? Changes your perspective, doesn't it? It helps you to see that this overly confident, bold, aggressive person in front of you is nothing more than a creature. But Jesus is the Lord. It actually leads you to speak up. That's Peter's next point in verse 15. Have a look in verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Peter's using the language of the courtroom there. When people put us on trial, he says, don't be afraid of them, but set apart Jesus as your Lord, as your judge, and be prepared to give your defence. That is, when people start challenging Christianity around campus, don't stop preaching the gospel. Often what happens is when the world gets offended, because that's usually the way they talk about it, you offended, you broke the rules. We think, oh, we must have done something wrong. We must have been too offensive. And if I can poke just slightly, gently into Kiwi culture here, you guys really do value niceness and inoffensiveness in relationships. You really do value not offending people, which means that when the university says you have broken the social rules and you have been offensive, you're very likely to go, oh, we must have been. We must have been offensive. We must have been insensitive. No, you've just been faithful to the gospel. And at that moment, don't step back and don't say, well, we're, we're going to have to pull our heads in and we're going to have to be less offensive and less bold in preaching the gospel. No, that's the moment to step forward. That's the moment to give the reason for the hope that you've got. Say, this is why I'm a Christian. Because Jesus is the risen Lord of the universe. This is the reason I believe what I believe about marriage. This is the reason I believe what I believe about gender. This is the reason I believe what I believe about heaven and hell and right and wrong. Because the fact is you have every reason for confidence. You have every reason to be bold as you make your defense. Jesus really is the Lord of the universe and his way to live really is the best way to live. Christianity is by far the most sensible and credible and intelligent way to live. And so in fact, the thing to be doing is to go on the attack. Ask them why they believe what they do. Say to them, why don't you believe in God given all of the evidence? Why do you think your life is actually worth something if there is no such thing as God? Where do your morals come from? Why do you believe that some things are right and wrong if there's no God to declare right and wrong? Challenge people. Now, I'm not saying be rude or be arrogant because in verse 15, he says, do this with gentleness and respect and keeping a clear conscience so that even as we defend the gospel, we've got to be gentle and respectful But remember who is the Lord. Remember to set apart Christ as Lord. And when people push back, don't just immediately assume 
that you have been arrogant. That's just our world's way of pushing back. It's classic passive aggression, isn't it? The way the world is aggressive now is by saying, you have made me a victim. Don't buy into that nonsense. Just keep preaching the gospel. Do you see what Peter says about being a pilgrim? It's a hard road. It's suffering before glory. And as awful as this sounds, I said it earlier in the week, in my experience in student ministry, if I was to come back here in 10, 15 years' time, somewhere between one in five and one in four of you are most likely not going to be following Jesus as Lord. That's generally the pattern between 18 and 30. One in five, one in four people decide that the path is too hard. How do you stay on the path? How do you stick on this road as a pilgrim? Well, Peter's answer is, with God's help and your eyes fixed on Jesus. So just come back and have a look in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter has just said that we're going to suffer. And look at what he says in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I so love those verses. I've always loved those verses. What keeps us on the road? Our eyes fixed on Jesus. We've never actually seen him because he's reached the end of his road. He's sitting glorified in heaven next to the Father. And we don't see him now, but we love him and we trust him. And in the midst of suffering, we trust that he's going to save our souls. And I'm hoping that that's the one thing that's happened to you this week, that you have just begun to love and trust Jesus a little bit more. On Monday night, when we saw everything that Jesus was going through, all of the hatred and the betrayal and the blood and the tears and all of that forsakenness, when we looked at all of that and you realised that he did that for you, did you love Jesus just a little bit more? Because I did and I do. And when you saw the way Jesus loved the Father on Tuesday night, that in this world of darkness and sin and rebellion, Jesus went to the cross and did all of that because he loved his Father in heaven. And when he said, not my will, but yours be done, did you love Jesus just that little bit more because of his love for the Father? Because I did. And when you saw the way the Father loved the Son on the cross, this amazing thing that even as God is pouring out his anger on Jesus, he's also loving him. And even as God is turning his back on Jesus and forsaking him, he's also with him. And even as the son is dying on the cross, he's also being welcomed home into the loving arms of the father. Did you love the father just a little bit more? Because I did. And with my eyes fixed on Jesus and fixed on his love for me and his love for the Father and the Father's love for him, if I fix my eyes on that, 
I'm confident I can just about stay on this road. Knowing that Jesus has walked it before me, I can love Jesus and learn to walk in his footsteps. Just fix your eyes on Jesus and learn to love him a little bit more every day and trust him with a little bit more of your life every day. As you walk through suffering and pain and as you walk through persecution, learn to love him a little bit more every day. And he'll lead you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this picture of life is so different to what we're often presented with as Christians. The prosperity gospel tells us that the Christian life should be one of victory and glory and happiness and wealth and health. And yet that wasn't the pilgrim path of our Lord. We thank you that your word gives us a really clear expectation of what life will be like here. That we have an inheritance in heaven and yet here we will suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Father, we thank you that you love us too much to leave us in comfort. And we pray that as you send trials, you will shield us in our faith. You'll keep us on the path, on the road, that you'll refine our faith. And Father, for some of us, we're walking through those trials now. Our faith in you is being stretched and challenged because you're taking us on a path that we don't want to go on. And Father, please strengthen our faith and refine it. Please keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And Father, for some of us, we're really feeling the disapproval of our families. We're feeling the disapproval of our friends. We're feeling the heat from the media who just keep saying awful things about us. And we're tempted to be afraid of them. We're tempted to join in with them. Help us to be more afraid of Jesus than anyone else and more in love with him than anyone else and help us to be bold. Father, when the university speaks against us, when we're accused of being unloving or, um, or intolerant, when we're accused of being all sorts of things that we know we're not, we're just speaking the truth. Help us not to go silent. Instead, help us to give the defence for why we believe and even to ask the university, why do you believe what you do? And Father, we pray that you will help us on this road. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that even though we don't see him, we love him. And he is the one who is giving us the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We pray that each day we will learn to love him a little bit more and trust him a little bit more. Amen.